Well, as I promised this morning, this will be one of those passages of Scripture that you'll want to mark down and remember when you have problems with your relationships in life, um, because it provides a backdrop for us uh, of an incredible picture of exactly what we just finished singing about, which is ultimately Jesus Christ came to this earth and died in our place, and his death reconciled us back to a holy God. We were without hope. We were in that place to where there was no possible way that our own merits, that those that relationship could be restored. But the Lord did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He, he reconciled us back to God. And there's a picture of this in a human sense uh, here in the 42nd chapter of the book of Genesis. And if you remember as Joseph had these dreams... One of the dreams that he had was that eventually that these sheaves that were in his field would bow down to him. We're now going to see that not only fulfilled, but we're going to see the purpose begin to unfold for which the Lord allowed this whole time of testing and trial in Joseph's life. Because let's face it, now we've had a little more than 20 years that have passed by since Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, He, for all intents and purposes, has spent uh, actually more time in Egypt than he had in in the land of Canaan. Uh, So in in that promised land that God had given to Abraham and to Isaac and ultimately to his father Jacob uh, and his mom, Rachel, he's one of the two sons, remember, of Rachel. And so you would think that God would kind of shield him and protect him and you know, he just, he just seems to be one of those guys that would be on God's radar to, that nothing would really befall him. And yet, this horrible event occurs in his life and his own family, his own brothers, sell him into slavery. And they do so in the most heinous way. They, they lie then to their father that he's been killed. And so you have this intense misery and you have this event that's been hanging over their heads now for 20 years. And we're going to see God work in that event as we pick up in verse 1, the first 24 verses here of Genesis 42, and a message that I've entitled True Reconciliation. And so would you pray with me, and we'll ask God to speak to us through this passage. Father, thank you for these that have come out, Lord. It is one of those days when so many have family time together, and I thank you for these that have come. And Lord, pray that what you have to say to us from the word would be very clear. Lord, I believe that there are some in this room tonight that need to hear what your spirit is going to say. Lord, we all need it, but some of us need it more than others. And so, Lord, I pray that from heaven you would speak to us, bless us with understanding and knowledge and insight into your word. Pray that you now would just take these words that are on our page, Lord, and place them in our hearts instead of on paper uh, so that we might be able to use them, Lord as we live our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Genesis 42. And when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and it's kind of a, an interesting statement, it's not like he's you know across the street and he can see Egypt, amen? Egypt is about almost 300 miles away uh, from where he's at. The, the, the very edges of the Egyptian empire um, really would be probably 60, 70 miles. But from where Joseph actually is and Pharaoh is in the Valley of the Kings, uh, he's 200 to 250 miles at the very nearest and about 300 miles at the furthest. So he's a long ways from being able to see this grain in Egypt. But what is being referenced here is he's, he knows that Egypt is in better shape than Canaan. And he knows there's grain there. And so he says to him, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Why is it you're just staring at each other? What are you doing? You understand how to solve this problem and you're standing there looking at each other. And he said, indeed, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. And so you can see that the situation is very dire. And this is where I want to begin to kind of unwrap this narrative. Very often when we have done something in our own lives that has borne a long and very painful price, there's some sin in your life and that sin 
has taken root, that sin has affected other people, and, and you kind of live life like you've gotten away with it. Because let's face it, that's what the brothers have done. Up to this point in time, probably you know, the week after they had thrown Joseph in the pit and sold him to slavery and concocted this thing to where they smear blood on the coat, they're probably shaking in their boots that they're going to get caught. A month later, that lessens a little bit. Six months later, they're probably thinking there's a chance that they're going to get away with it. A a year later, they're probably thinking they have gotten away with it, but it's still a little dangerous because there may be one of those traitors. But now, 20 years plus have gone by. And you can imagine that the brothers still remembered the event, but you can also see how they probably have thought that, eh, maybe it wasn't that big a deal. Maybe God didn't really care. Maybe in the midst of all of that, you know, God's just going to kind of let us skate on this. We know we kind of, you know, convinced dad that he was eaten by wild animals and we sold our brother into slavery. But, you know, it's kind of worked out. We see that God is very patient, very long-suffering, and he, like an elephant, doesn't ever forget And very often in this type of a circumstance, the Lord has to do something very extreme to bring us to that place to where reconciliation can happen. I see this frequently and often in messed up family relationships. Sometimes it's between parents and children. Sometimes it's between brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's whole family. Sometimes there's been decades of stuff that's gone on. And God wants to fix it. There's junk that's happened. And here you can see in the life of a precursor to a believer, but definitely someone who trusts in the Lord, notice that it has become very dire. They've been brought to their knees. They've been put into a place where there's nothing left to do but absolute subjection to to what God is going to do to them. And so Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Now remember who this is. As far as Jacob is concerned, he had two sons by Rachel. One of them, as far as he's concerned, is dead. This is the only son left to his beloved, that he had with his beloved Rachel. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And so there's, in essence, this journey that that takes uh, not just the brothers, but also a, a very large percentage of the people who are in Canaan send an emissary to go and to buy grain because it's the only place it can be found. And remember, as we discussed last time, that this region of Egypt um, is every single year, it is irrigated by flood, uh, and so it's very, very consistent as opposed to the Jordan River Valley, which is highly subject uh, to periods of drought. In fact, drought has been so severe in Israel uh, that Israel stopped drawing water out of the Sea of Galilee a few years ago and focused on desalinization because there was not enough rainfall falling in Israel to actually take care of refilling the Sea of Galilee, which was their main source of fresh water. And so it remains to this day, it's problematic if you're depending uh, on rainfall in that area of the world. It was time. The Lord had finally put into place, as I said today, the Lord gives you three types of answers. He gives you yes, he gives you no, and he gives you wait. And he also does this when he's working out the details of things in your life where he needs to teach you lessons. God does not always and immediately punish us. God does not always and immediately work in our lives in a a negative way to correct us. Sometimes God allows things to go on for a very, very, very long period of time until the exact proper time comes and all the pieces are in place. And that's where we find this story uh, continuing now. There, there are some people that look at this and, and almost as this story begins to unfold, it's as if Joseph's kind of wasting time here a little bit. Um, I don't actually see it that way because I know that 
in not only my own life, but in the lives of most of the other people I've ever talked to about these types of things, that we have to be in exactly the right place for reconciliation to happen. God's got to deal with both sides, both parties involved in it. And there has to be a desire for repentance. And so in that sense, this passage is very much like an Old Testament Galatians 6.1, which if you haven't memorized it, uh, it is this. It's, brethren, if, you're, if a man is taken in a trespass, if there's something that happens, in other words, he falls into sin, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness lest you yourselves also be tempted considering yourself in other words we have to look at our own lives we have to say look what what needs to happen when someone has a problem the believer should always be looking for restoration it's the reason that when you read matthew 18 it's the purpose for which we go to to go take care of a problem between two people the hope is always restoration the hope is always reconciliation and here's the strange thing about reconciliation of any kind if any of you in here have ever restored anything and whether that's a piece of old furniture or an automobile or a house um, personally we've done all of those things but when you when you begin to restore something something comes up really quickly it is way easier to throw it away and to get a new one than it is to fix an old one. It takes a ton more effort to restore something fully than it, than it does to go buy a new one. And in the, our world, because we live in such a throwaway society, and I don't just mean with paper and plastic goods and plates and those types of things, but we're quick to throw away people. One of the reasons that divorces so racked our society, our, our country, is what it's done is it's caused people to actually forget about their family. They, they literally, you know, well, the easier thing to do is just forget they ever existed. And, and so we walk from these things when God wants to restore them. And, and whether it's a car, which if you ever redo a car, we had a 1973 Toyota Land Cruiser that we restored. And, and when you start restoring something, you find out very quickly the only way that you could do it really well is to tear the whole thing apart, piece by piece, down to the nuts and bolts that hold on the body panels, all the way down to the frame. And if you don't get every last little bit of rust off that frame, that rust is coming back. And the same is true in a relationship. There has to be complete restoration of relationships, otherwise they remain at least partially damaged, partially broken. And in order for that to happen, there must be repentance. Relationships do not get restored unless there is repentance. Things can be forgiven. You can even have peace. But there will not be restoration unless there is repentance somebody's got to turn around and go the other way so that it actually is fixing what was done. It's fixing the problem. When you look at that, the way the brothers had dealt with Joseph was pretty harsh, but the way Joseph deals with them is showing them what repentance looks like and is showing them what restoration looks like. Because he's the grand vizier. He's the second in command in all of Egypt. He could have just seen his brothers coming and saying, you know what, you're dead. After what you did to me, after all these years, you didn't even come to check on me. He would have, none of us in this room, in a practical sense, would have blamed him one iota for throwing them into prison. We would have just looked at, well, you know, you get what's coming to you. What goes around comes around. Somebody would have said it. But that's not what God wants. God wants reconciliation. He doesn't just want a fragile truce either. You know, you can learn to live with an awful lot of things if there's just some general peace. But that's not God's plan. God's plan is to actually fix stuff that's broken. And so rather than instant reconciliation, we see that first there is a time of necessary testing. You know, going hungry can really cause you to take stock of a lot of things. When you don't have, 
when, when you're physically sick, you'll do anything to get well, amen? You want proof of that? Walgreens. You know what I'm saying? Go in there and look at how many over-the-counter OTC cold medications there are. How many over-the-counter pain medications there are. We spend billions upon billions of dollars in this country trying to just fix little things like colds. And yet we often overlook much greater things like spiritual damage that we've caused in other people's lives. And God's saying to us, look, you probably need to look after the damage you've done in somebody else's life more than you do your own health if you've got a cold. And so this picture is one where God allows this time of testing to happen in Canaan because now they are going to have to come to terms with what it is that they did. And this is one of the things that God does very frequently in our lives as well. James chapter 1, and if you don't have it underlined in your Bible, there in verse 2 it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work that you might be complete and lacking nothing. James was talking about these things that God allows into our lives because there's a deeper work he wants to do. You see, when you're spiritually out of sorts and you recognize it, you'll do anything to get back to that place to where you can be well between you and God. When you're emotionally unhappy, you're in that place, you'll do anything to see joy come back into your life. When you're in poverty, you will act on what is necessary to, to make sure that you don't have to go through that. And there's things that you will do to make provision in your family. And, and even greater still interpersonally, when you have damaged relationships, one of the things that happens is the missing of the people, the missing of the fellowship, the stuff that's happened between you and that other person, you start to long for that companionship and God makes it so that you endure the trial of that pain And then you go, you know, maybe I should fix this. Maybe I should do something about it. You see what the brothers were doing is they weren't even paying attention. Jacob goes, what are you guys doing? Don't you see the problem? Look, we're starving. Do something about it. They were basically, in essence, what what Jacob's saying is they were content to sit around and die. And sometimes, rather than confront the things that we have messed up, we're willing to sit around and die. We need to be willing to confront the things that we've messed up and do something about it. Not talk about it. When it's all said and done, more than often, more is said than done. Amen? People sit around and talk about stuff all day. There comes a time when you need to just simply do something about it. Do more than talking. And thanks to Joseph, there's abundant grain. He saw in this vision, this dream, that there was going to be years of plenty. Those who passed are now into the second year uh, of the famine. And so he's going to be the one that typifies again Jesus and providing the bread of life for them. And when you go through these types of things, it can do one of two things. It can bring out the very best in people. It can also bring out the very worst. It depends on where you're leaning. It depends on what you're doing. But when you think about this story and what God is going to do with it, you can see how the Lord is always at work even in the very most difficult things that we go through in life. Now, maybe you're going through something that's horrible and terrible right now yourselves. Maybe you've got something going on where somebody's hurt you deeply, abandoned you. Maybe you're going through a time of financial or emotional difficulty or spiritual difficulty. Maybe it's something between you and some other person. Maybe there's someone in your life that has just destroyed you. I'm here to tell you that what your Bible says is that if you will trust God with it and do what he asks of you, if you will endure the test, he wants to fix it. And he can. And he will if you give him an opportunity. For the brothers, though, this is a picture of Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. This is an immutable law, spiritual law, and it's most easily defined by simply reaping and sowing. Whatever you sow, that is what you're going to reap. 
And if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap from the Spirit goodness. And in this case, these brothers have sown to the flesh. Life is very very tough at times, isn't it? We, We go through difficult things in life. And under even the best of circumstances, relationships can get tested. Now imagine that you've done this heinous thing that these brothers have done and sold your own brother into slavery. And, and now they're going to end up basically in, in his hometown. And they're going to see him more than 20 years later. This is a prime opportunity for God to express this law to them. And, and I think sometimes, as I said as I began tonight, we think we're going to get away with something. And while God does not always punish us for every dumb thing we do, let me make that very clear, sometimes God just simply lets things go. But very often in major things where we have not repented, in other words, the key here is repentance, when when you've done something and you've repented of it, God's grace is almost immediate most of the time. He's like, Okay, you got it, don't do it, perfect, we're square. But if you don't learn from those things, then God is forced to put you in the cycle uh, of allowing these things to come around. Numbers chapter 32, verses 20 to 23, speaking of Moses, Moses said to them, if you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out his enemies from before you, before him in the land, And the land is subdued before the Lord. And then afterward, you may return and be blameless before the Lord, before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note. He's given a very clear instruction. He said, look, I want you guys to do something very specific. And then he gives them a challenge. But if you do not do so, take note. If you don't do what the Lord tells you to do, when you know what to do, to him who knows it, sin it sin, is what scripture says. When you know to do good and fail to do it, that, that is just as bad as knowing what is wrong and doing it anyway. That passage closes, verse 23. If you do not do, take note, you've sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. God keeps very, very, very long records of things that he wants to do to work in our lives. And while we are to forget and we are to forgive, God often allows these things to kind of take root and work their way through our lives. And then it works out that Galatians 6 principle. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. He sows from his flesh and reap from the flesh corruption. Sows the Spirit, reap from the Spirit everlasting life. Don't worry while doing good, but in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart. And therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, the principle is this. God uses everything in our lives, and when we take things that are good and we use them for not good purposes, that is an offense to the Lord. And so he allows these, these circumstances uh, to come to a head. And in this case, it was going to be very painful for these brothers. God can do anything he wants to do. You know, sometimes I, I think we almost, some of us believe that, you know, God's kind of almost incapable or he's inept or, or maybe he doesn't see certain things. You know, maybe he is actually, you know, kind of sleeping or something sometimes. But God knows everything. He sees everything. And what Jacob and his sons don't know is that the sovereign creator God who created them and this earth and everything on it was making sure that these brothers are going to bow down before Joseph. That was the dream that he had. That was what he said. And so they're now heading down there. And when you read your Bibles, you're going to find that God uses all kinds of strange negative things. In Second Kings chapter 5, he uses a kidnapping. In... Uh, Esther, the book of Esther, he uses a royal beauty contest. He he uses in Ezekiel a sudden death. He does the same thing in the book of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Amen? 
He uses strange, sometimes painful things to accomplish his purposes. He uses dreams in, in both the book of Genesis, the book of Daniel. Uh, he uses a plague in Joel chapter 1 to, to speak to the children of Israel. Uh, and we all know the story of Jesus. What does God use in Luke chapter 2? He uses a Herod census to get Jesus and Mary and everybody else to be in the right place at the right time, right? So, so God is using all things in your life for his plans and purposes, even when you can't see how he's going to do that. Here's a few things in this remaining chapter, the remaining parts of this chapter that God allows. He's going to allow some pretty harsh words. Sometimes we need a little tough love, don't we? Anybody need a little tough love ever in your life? I think most of us have at times. And now Joseph was governor over the land, verse 6. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with his faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Now, it doesn't say he was rough. It says he spoke roughly to them. That under the influence of the Holy Spirit, I believe Joseph is putting them in the place where they need to be. And then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, we come from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, remind yourselves that Joseph has been more than half of his life in Egypt. He's fluent in Egyptian, he's speaking in Egyptian, and he's having his own words translated into Hebrew, even though he speaks Hebrew perfectly. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said, you were spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. That They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. And we're all one man's son. We're honest men. We're servants, not spies. But he said to them, no, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to spy out. You, you, you want to see, you know, are, are we suffering too? It's like they're an invasion force. as a precursor to it. They've been dropped in behind enemy lines. And he said, no, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, as I spoke to you, saying, you were spies. God's speaking in the lives of these brothers, causing them to come to terms with the truth. They are being forced to utter out of their own mouths the truth. Basically, God is putting them into a position where they have opportunity to confess. God will often do this to you. He will not force you. He will not even cajole you. He's not going to make it happen. But he will give you opportunity to be in a place where you haven't have the the easiest way out would be for you to just say, I messed up. I should have never said that. I should have never done that. And so Joseph, under the influence of the Holy Spirit's guidance here, he keeps repeating, he says, no, you're spies. Now look, he knows the whole story, amen? He's part of the story. Like he knows exactly who they are. And he knows exactly what they've done. But he keeps saying things to them so that they can have an opportunity Man, we so messed up. We sold our brother. The reason we don't have that other brother is we sold him into slavery. We think he's dead. But they hadn't gotten to that place yet. They hadn't recognized their own really culpability even before this supposed pagan king. When Joseph's standing there like a clean-shaven Egyptian, no beard, he's got his little goatee. And now the ten men are, are going to bow down before him exactly as he had that dream back in chapter 37. But there's a problem. There were 11 stars in that dream. One of them's missing. I was back in Canaan. 
So the time is not quite yet right. The whole situation isn't exactly where it needs to be. And God's going to allow them the opportunity to think about it. And you have to imagine it was really difficult for Joseph to control himself, his emotions at this point in time. We're going to see that, in fact, it was. In this chapter, he's towards the end, he's going to even weep over this. But he's going to set up the situation to where all of them are going to come back to the land. And he's even going to do that in a way that they can, they can repent at any point in time. And so first, God uses some seemingly harsh words. The second thing that we see is he uses some temporary confinement. He's, he's going to actually make sure that they understand this is a serious matter. God will very often hem you in to leave you only one way out. God will very often hem you in to leave only one way out. And that way will be the right way. He'll put you in prison so that you can only have one way out and it's the right way. In this case, it happened to be literal. In this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. Now remember who he is. When he says by the life of Pharaoh, it's by the life of Pharaoh. This is a presidential edict. This is signed by the Pharaoh himself. Remember, Joseph has his signet ring. He impresses that in some clay or some wax, and it is a done deal. Thus says Pharaoh. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And so he put them all together in prison for three days. Again, another little picture of being set free. But Joseph's going to give them the opportunity. He's saying, look, here, here's the deal. I'm going to put you in custody. I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to give you opportunity. And I would ask you, is there any area in your life where God has hemmed you in, where God has put you in a place to where it seems like it's been harsh, but he's confined you and he's only given you one way out and you're resisting. You're trying to figure out some other way. I don't want to confess. I don't want to get this over. I, I, I don't, you know, I might have to admit my faults. I think most of us have somebody in our lives that you can look at the way they've lived their lives and you just go, man, if they just say they're sorry, it'd be over. They just confess the sin and be done with. I think they're beginning to sense now that God's actually dealing with them. And so God then puts them under some strict accountability. Sometimes when God's had some tough words for you, sometimes when God's hemmed you in so there's only one way out, sometimes he then places you under even a more strict accountability so that someone is watching and you know it. Very often the pastoral staff here at the church, myself, play this particular role. We end up getting stuck uh, between somebody's situation, their relatives, this, this thing that's happened and, and the reconciliation that God wants to do. And sometimes God puts somebody in there to guide the process, to give some accountability. Verse 18, and then Joseph said to them, the third day, do this and live. Look, you're not going to get out of it. You're not going to be able to avoid it. You're not going to get to say nothing happened. You're going to have to deal with this situation. Do this and live. For I fear God. And if you were honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you, go and carry grain for the famine in your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And so you can see God now placing some authority over them to where they really have no way out but to deal with this situation. And this is how God works in our lives. And I want you to see this. This is really the essence of biblical accountability to leadership. It's like very often when you have somebody that's sitting there and, and where this works very often, especially in marriage counseling, is when you have one of, of the two, 
one of the two spouses comes and makes an accusation against the other, and we as pastoral staff will usually meet with that person one time, and we'll say, okay, what's the problem? We're trying to do a little bit of research here to see if there's some reason for the church to get involved. And the next step is, okay, we want to see both of you in the office. And here's what happens. Now you have to say those things in front of the Lord effectively. It's like, okay, now tell me the whole story in front of me, the pastor, standing in for the Lord to to hear and mediate this thing. And then they say what they need to say, and somebody who's listening in from God's perspective says, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get out of that relationship that you've got with this other person. And we're going to keep tabs on you. We want you to call in. We want you to let us know how it's going. And oh, by the way, you get the account code to his cell phone. And you get the account code to her cell phone. And if there's any shenanigans, we're going to pull you both back in. You hem them in. You put them under some accountability so that the only way out is the right way. You get it dealt with. Because if you just leave people to weasel their way out of stuff, they weasel their way out of stuff. And very often, this this sets up the proper uh, level of accountability to where someone will actually take responsibility for what has happened. That's why we refuse to meet with anyone more than once alone. If you're bringing an accusation, even against your own spouse, we'll hear the accusation, but the next time, you need to say that in front of them. That way, there's accountability. Truth gets spoken. Lies get diminished. If you want to be reconciled, if you're looking to reconcile your marriage, you can't just simply make accusations against people. You have to actually work on the problem. And the only way to work on the problem is to hold people accountable to the truth. Sometimes the only love that works is tough love. There's a very painful, necessary confession that comes next look at verse 21 and then they said to one another we are truly guilty concerning our brother now i want to give you a little insight here of all of the sins in the entire old testament this is the only one that we actually have a recorded confession on we're guilty There is serious healing that occurs when you will actually confess that you are guilty. When you repent, to repent and say, well, I kind of, you know, whatever I did, I'm kind of sort of sorry for that. Keep your words. Those mean nothing. When, When there's no association with the things that have been done, when you're trying to say you're sorry without saying you're sorry, if you're unwilling to actually confess what's happened and call sin, sin, and say, you know what, I was wrong, most of the time you're going to get zero results from it. You might even actually get some negative results from it. And so these brothers do the right thing. They actually fully confess. We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They actually recognize that God is dealing with them exactly as Galatians 6 says. God's dealing with us. We messed up. We're guilty. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against this boy? And you would not listen, and therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. In other words, he's speaking Egyptian to them, even though he understands Hebrew. And he turned himself away from them and wept. And then he returned to them again and talked with them, And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. That's a painful confession. But that painful confession is the beginning of actual healing. This is where it begins. When someone takes responsibility for what they've done and truly said, I am so sorry. I messed up. 
What I did was wrong. An apology followed by but is not an apology at all. Just keep your apology. When, when you say you're sorry and then you, in essence, attempt to blame it on somebody else by following it with 14 caveats, that's not an apology. What you see here is a proper apology. We sinned. We disregarded our brother. We saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, but we would not hear. That's not, well, you know, he was a pompous little arrogant brat. You know, yeah, we sold him into slavery, but, you know, he was really a jerk. We sold him into slavery, but, you know, he had the fancy coat. We don't even know why Jacob gave it to him, and we didn't get one. Now, what they did was they took responsibility for their actions, and that's the beginning of God being able to do great things in their lives. This is how reconciliation actually happens. It's when we take responsibility for the things that we've done. We admit what we have done, and we say, you know what? I messed up. It requires repentance. Yes, there's going to be tears. And yes, there are going to be some painful things. Guys, look. If Jesus wept, it's not inappropriate for us to weep over our sin. If the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who invented your tear ducts, used his, then there's an appropriate place for us to really come to terms with the things that we've done and to weep over them and say, you know what, I messed up. Tears are a very powerful thing. And in the same token, they shouldn't be flippant. Some of us are more prone to them than others. Some of us have deeper emotional sets than other people. But the picture here is when things get real, when, when there's the necessary words that have been spoken, there should be the necessary emotions that follow with them. And this is not a recipe because some people have greater emotions than others. But there needs to be a genuine sense that, that what you're doing is, is for the purpose of restoring this relationship. It's, it's for reconciliation. Joseph's actually going to weep six more times. There's some painful practical applications that comes here right at the end. Reuben's attempt to rescue his brothers and, you know, Simeon is basically Jacob's number two son. I mean, there's some, there's some painful things that are going to happen here. But ultimately, this is God at work with grace. Because this is the way grace works. When, when we give up the things that have bound us and we say, Lord, I'm surrendering these things to you, that's the beginning of when God can really work in our lives. It's like, okay, God, you can have it. You can do it. I confess it. I'm over it. I don't want to be like this anymore. I'm done. And I think as Joseph behaves towards his brothers, it kind of reminds me of Romans chapter 11. Because you can kind of see just the right mixture of all these things put together. Romans eleven twenty two says, Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity. But towards you, Paul said, goodness. If you continue in goodness, do so because otherwise you'll be cut off. Look, the choice is ours. We can either have the severity of God or the kindness of God. We can have the goodness of God or we can have his, his, his spanking hand. I think sometimes we forget that when we have damaged the relationship ourselves or something has gone on in our own lives, we have an opportunity to either have the goodness or the severity of the Lord. When you do the right thing, you get the goodness of the Lord. When you continue to do the wrong thing, you get the severity of the Lord. In other words, you get the harsh words, you get the confinement, you get the prison sentence. You get the stuff that's going to bind you up, the things that are going to be painful, or you can say, you know what, I messed up. Forgive me. I, I don't want to live like this anymore. And you can see in Joseph's life, he's kind to his brother, even though he has reason to not be kind. That's a picture of that love in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? Love is patient and love is kind. Love is long-suffering while it's kind. 
It's willing to suffer its own self in order to be kind, to have an opportunity to be kind. And you can see Joseph's motivation here is love. Joseph's motivation is restoration. And if he just wanted to extract a pound of flesh, he is right in the sweet spot for getting that pound of flesh, isn't he? He could have just thrown them into prison for the rest of their days. It's like, look, I'm the grand vizier of Egypt. You're a bunch of spies. Nobody's going to miss you. They don't even know you're here. You're dead. But Joseph is so infused with the love of the Lord and wanting to do the right thing that he seeks the one thing that God always seeks, and that's restoration. That's reconciliation. There's no relationship that you will ever have on the face of the earth to which God is saying, I don't want that ever restored. Now, it may not be possible, and let me be very clear on this, for restoration and reconciliation to happen, it takes two parties working at the same thing. But from your side, you can still be like Joseph, loving, kind, gentle, desirous of the one thing that maybe that person doesn't want. Maybe that other person doesn't want restoration, but you can want it, and you can be set free from the things that bind you. And this is where bitterness comes into view. When you refuse to be reconciled, you you fall into that place of Matthew 18, the end of the chapter, when God says, if you do not forgive your brother who sins against you, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you, but rather he will turn you over to the torturers. The reason he says that is there's a lot of torture that comes around with unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, unrestored relationships. They eat at you forever. And so from your side, as best as it lies with you, as Paul said, you can live at peace with all men. You, you, from your side, can desire restoration and reconciliation, and God will set you free. And if both people desire it, then the whole relationship can be restored. We need to remember this the next time we think we've been treated unjustly. The next time you're dealing with something painful in your life, you can look back on the story and go, what should I do, Lord? What you should do is seek restoration and reconciliation. What you should do is say, I'm willing to forgive. You're you're willing to go the extra mile because that's what God did for us at the cross, amen? That's what Jesus did on the cross. He went the extra mile. He actually went the extra several hundred thousand light years for you. He stretched all the way across the galaxy. All the way to the edge of space. To the other side of the universe. To take care of our sin debt. These brothers now are going through the traumatic experience which they brought on themselves. But it had stirred their conscience. It had brought them to that place where they really contemplate these things. And they're right on the edge of being healed. The remainder of the story becomes one of tremendous beauty. And while they're realizing right now, they're receiving that which they had long deserved. They had actually gotten away from the potential penalty for two decades. They didn't have any real bitterness towards the governor. Did you notice this? They think this is an Egyptian governor. And it's not like they're, they're bitter against him because they know they're guilty. They know they've messed up. And I want to finish with this. You know, sometimes the only way to heal a wound is to scrape it open. Sometimes the only way to actually make something completely well is to tear the scab off. To get the infection out. In this case, that's what happened. There's starvation. There's families in crisis. There's people going hungry. There's a family that doesn't think they're going to make it. They think they're going to die, in fact. So don't be surprised in those things in your life where you have need of restoration that the Lord might just simply do some of these things that we've talked about. You, you may end up hemmed in. You may end up in prison. You may end up under some type of authorities you don't think you should be under. But it's because God loves you and he wants to restore the relationships that are broken in your life. And if you'll let him, that is exactly what he can do.
in the very worst of circumstances as this one is. And the rewards of those relationships being restored are well worth the pain. So if God's got to pull the scab off of something and begin that process, let him do it. If he's got to cut it back open so that it can heal, let him do it. If he's got to drag some of those pieces back out of the open to where they can be dealt with, let him do it. So that you can have that healing that he really wants. Amen? Just stand with me. We're going to close in prayer. Sarah's coming back up. Sarah and John got a closing song for us. Well, the pastors are going to come up front and maybe you've got a relationship. There's, there's somebody that, you know, the Lord's telling you, you need to be restored to that person. There's a, there's a broken relationship in your life. You just want to pray that the Lord would give you an opportunity um, to go where there's grain and to buy. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe there's somebody that you've tried to be reconciled to and they're, they're unwilling Pray that the Lord would soften their heart. But don't let the sun go down on these things. Don't, don't think that they're going to go away on their own because they won't. If you're still remembering it, God's asking you to do something with it. And so leave it with the Lord and then do your part. Amen? Father, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, thank you for this incredible picture of what you did for us at the cross. Lord, you took all the abuse. You took all the pain. Um, We sold you for 30 pieces of silver. It really wasn't Judas. It was us. Lord, we're the ones that falsely accused you. We spit in your face. Lord, each one of us had a hand in your death. But the good news is you didn't hold hold it against us. You were raised three days later for a reconciliation. Lord, you said, that's okay. If you'll take responsibility and repent and ask for forgiveness of your sin, you'll, you'll be saved because what I did was enough. And Lord, we pray tonight, if there's anyone here that's got a relationship that's busted and you needs your touch. God, I pray that you would just help them uh, to endure the process, Lord. They need to go to that person and confess it, then they would. Lord, if they're the ones that need to have someone come to them, then Lord, I pray that person uh, would recognize that they have some, some work to do. And it'll be good when it's all over and done. And so God, thank you for restoring us. Thank you for buying us back, reconciling us back to God the Father through your own death. Pray that we would be busy doing the same thing with all that we come in contact with. Lord, every relationship on this earth that we wouldn't be satisfied with broken relationships. Lord, bless us with the gift of reconciliation in Jesus' name. Amen.